Amen. Psalm 23 is where we find ourselves this morning. And I would offer to you that what we have in Psalm 23, particularly in the very first four words, in Hebrew it's just two words, it's Yahweh Roy, it's just two words, the Lord is my shepherd. What we have here is something that I think quite often we get. And when I say we get, I mean that we cognitively understand how the English language puts those four words together. But maybe we tend to miss what lies beneath them. You know, the phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words, is probably something you've heard before, right? This idea that you see this image and it can communicate a number of things. In fact, a lot of numbers, even a thousand things to you as you look at this image. But I would present to you and I would argue that a word picture presents even more. Because a word picture, just like the one that's used in the beginning of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, engages your imagination. It engages your imagination. Really, insofar as it can do it in a deeper way, maybe even than pictures. I'll give you an example. Um, if I read the novel Forrest Gump, and it is a novel, by the way, written in 1986, but if I open that book and I read the novel Forrest Gump, who am I going to see when I read Forrest? Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. There's no way I'm seeing anybody else. That, that's, he is Forrest Gump, right? That's the picture I'm given. If I had no knowledge of this Tom Hanks, which would be virtually impossible, right? I'd have this opportunity to, to think and wonder and see, maybe beyond what's been presented to me. There's this other book uh, called Charlie and the Chocolate Factory that I loved when I was a kid, and there was a movie based on it. Um, when you think of Willy Wonka, you think of one person. Who is that? It is Gene Wilder. <laughs> I don't care how much Tim Burton tries to convince me it's Johnny Depp. It is not. <laughs> Gene Wilder is Willy Wonka. But once I have that kind of picture there in certain ways, I I'm stuck. I kind of can't see beyond it. What we're offered in the scriptures, and particularly in this psalm, is an opportunity to see something factually true, this metaphor, this word picture, but to allow the Lord to deepen and help us see myriad implications of it as we get this idea or the reality of who God is explained by this reality of shepherding. The picture, when it's so defined, like it's Tom Hanks or like it's Gene Wilder, can leave little to the imagination. But we need pictures and imaginative ones to reveal what is beneath us. And I would argue what's inside of us. We come to this shepherd imagery, and if you're like me, you can probably confess that though you've, maybe you've read A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 by, uh, you know, by Keller, or maybe you've looked at this psalm, or maybe you've studied shepherding, but I can... I can tell the way you look at me, you don't find me very much of an agrarian type person. I'm not a farmer, and this is true, right? A lot of us are not. We're probably disconnected from this vocation. Maybe we don't really understand what it's like to tend or to raise or to pasture sheep. 
But the beautiful thing that's happening in this moment is that God gives us the opportunity to look outside ourselves to see what's inside ourselves. When we take ourselves into this word picture, we look outside ourselves, and it just takes that getting out, getting into the life of the shepherd, getting into the past, getting into a different place in a different time to actually not only see ourselves, but see who God is for us and in us in this very moment. That's what happens in Psalm 23. The shepherd imagery is practical, but today it ought to engage our imagination and our wonder in these simple words, the Lord is my shepherd. So over the past few weeks, we've been walking through the Psalms. In Psalm, first week in Psalm 1 and 2, we saw truly that Jesus is the one of whom these Psalms speak, the one that these Psalms are about. The following week, we looked at a psalm of praise in Psalm 8, a, a praise to the Lord at the wonder of creation. Last week, we looked at a wisdom psalm in Psalm 73. Today, as we look at Psalm 23, we're looking at a psalm that specifically deals with the theme of trust. And this is the big idea that you're going to get out of this today, hopefully, as the Spirit speaks to you. We can trust God. We can trust Him. And this is the hope that you'll see these things today. Number one, when we see this psalm, we see the God who provides. We see the God who provides. Second, we see the God who protects. And third, and finally, we're going to see the God who pursues. And the culmination of all these things, seeing God as provider, seeing God as protector, seeing God as the one who pursues us, should inevitably cause us to see that it's the very presence of the Lord is being with this God, Jesus Christ, his son, in the Holy Spirit that is going to give us hope and life and encouragement. Let's read together. This is Psalm 23, beginning in verse 1. We'll read all the way through verse 6. It says this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together, thanks be to God. You know this psalm. You've heard this psalm. This might be, especially as far as the Old Testament goes, this might be the, the, the piece of scripture that you and perhaps the rest of the world is familiar with from the Old Testament. You've heard this at weddings, you've heard it at funerals, you've heard it in many different places in your life. You've probably even shared this with others to offer them hope and consolation. You've probably given this to people. I want to be very clear, the things that I hope to share with you this morning are not going to be these revolutionary, radical new things. You're not going to hear something maybe that you, that you never heard before. But what you will hear, I hope, is a reminder of who God is and what he's done for you in Jesus Christ so that you can leave this place with eternal, unending hope. We're going to walk through all six of these verses and just quickly see 
what's happening in the life of David and just how personal this God is that loves you and pursues you. In verse 1, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, obviously, David had familiarity because he actually is this agrarian guy, right? He's a shepherd. He knows what it is to shepherd. And this is the word picture that he presents for us. The Lord is my shepherd. That word shepherd there actually means feeder. It means feeder. It means David is saying something akin to this. The Lord is the one who feeds me. The Lord is the one who takes care of me. The Lord is the one who provides for me. The Lord is the one who meets every single solitary need that I have. That's the way this psalm starts and what he wants to echo and he wants to share. Not only with the Lord as he calls to him, but also to others. Is to profess this faith that the Lord gives me everything. When we read those next, that next line, I shall not want... We often read that as shall, as future tense. That, that David says, I'll, I'll get to this place perhaps where I will not want. But, but to get real nerdy about the language here, what's happening is there's this imperfect sense that comes here that David writes, which means that not only am I going to be someone who shall not want in the future, it's because I don't lack for anything in the here and now. This is not only future language from David, it's present language. He's describing how God provides for him not only in the future, but in this very moment. And not only does he do that, David describes the lavish way in which God provides. And he does it in something that I think is really powerful here, where he says it qualitatively and quantitatively. Not only what God provides is good, but it's full It's lasting. It's of immense measure. It is everything and more than one needs. Look at verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. One sentence, one phrase, but green pastures indicates two very important things. Number one, there is a pasture, so there's sustenance, and there's enough. There's provision. There's care. There is this feeding, this food that is given. But notice this, it's not just that, but it's green pastures. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to kind of the hill country or been to Israel. But but if if you've read or seen or visited, or or you've talked to Jerry, you don't know, or you know rather, there's just not a lot of green there. There's just not a ton of green everywhere. What what David is saying is that God is so good and he provides for his people so immensely that not only does he give those in his care everything they need, but it's the very best of what they need. It's not just that he gives them what they need, but the quality of it is unmatched. It's unparalleled. This is the kind of God that provides for you And for me, this is who God is. He gives us everything. Look at this. He says, he leads me beside still waters. He leads me beside still waters. The point that David is trying to come across with here, the thing that he longs to share, is that water doesn't only provide the quenching of thirst, but this still water 
presents an identity and a reality of peace. When you look to the Old Testament, you see a lot of stories that involve water. There's this really big one early in Genesis, right? There's others all throughout the Old Testament, and we get this picture, this imagery of these tempestuous seas, the threat, the danger that lurks beneath the waters. You know, we got to remember, like, at this time in history, there is no submerging. There is no Jacques Cousteau. There is no National Geographic. Nobody knows. See, I got an amen. There's, there's nobody that knows what's beneath. The seas were not only a place of deep fear because of what lied beneath, but what would happen with the wind and the waves and the tempestuous nature of the seas that existed around these people, quite frankly, scared them to death. So David uses this imagery and says, God not only quenches my thirst, but he cares for my soul. He gives peace and calm and nourishment to me, not just in a physical way, but in a spiritual one as well. Verse 3 says this, he restores my soul. He restores my soul. So now we're seeing the provision of God is not just, just this physical provision. It's also very much spiritual. The two were inextricably tied together. That word restore there in a, in a number of ways really means rebuild. It means rebuild. There's this idea of rebuilding, and there's also this idea of returning. When you look through Israel's history, you see that it's marked in many places with destruction and rebuilding, specifically of Jerusalem, specifically of the temple. Go look at passages in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Nehemiah and Daniel and all of these different passages that talk about things that are needing to be rebuilt. The Lord longs to rebuild. This is what the Lord does, David said. And he doesn't just do this in a sense of constructing a building. He does it in the very lives of people like you and me. He restores us. He rebuilds us. How does he do it? Through his very presence. He provides. Look at this. It says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, uh, I, I grew up not far from here in Leeds, and we, our, the house I grew up in, my parents' house, we didn't really have like this little fenced backyard like we have now. We just kind of had woods. And I remember me and my brother and my friends would just constantly just kind of go on adventures as young kids, just running through the woods, and there would be specific places that we would go, and there would just be a path that would appear after a while because we trampled it so much. We ran down the same direction. We went to the same spot in the creek. We did it over and over and over. And I bet you that anybody who wasn't us that didn't know where they were going could come behind our house and see this path that people had walked before. Do you know that when this verse says paths of righteousness, it really means in so many ways tracks. It means tracks of righteousness. It means this place that is marked in front of one so that it's easily seen, it's clearly defined. It's not just, just kind of taking a map, but instead seeing the path before one and being able to walk it. David says that this is the kind of provision that the Lord makes for us. 
that he leads us in these paths that are clearly marked in his righteousness. He provides for us by not only meeting our physical needs, but he also directs us. His provision is such that he guides us. I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm a human being that needs a lot of guidance. A lot. I don't know about you, but I've, there are times where I feel directionless, where I kind of am set on a path and I don't know exactly where to go. If that's you, be encouraged. Because the God who provides for you guides you. He guides you in paths of righteousness. He will lead you in the proper direction. And here's why. Look at this. For his name's sake. This is nuts to me. Do you know the God of the universe has his reputation attached to you? And hear this clearly. Not for what you will do for him on any level. But he has staked his name on you that he's not going to fail you. He's not going to let you down. He's going to lead you. He's going to lead you for his name's sake. Go to 2 Timothy 2.13 and, you, and you'll see this. That God cannot deny us. Even when we are faithless, he'll remain faithful. Why? Because he can't deny himself. He's not going to break his covenant. Therefore, we can be assured that God is going to provide for us and lead us in paths of righteousness, in paths of life. Now, look into verse 4, and you begin to see not only the God who provides, but the God who protects. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Maybe this is best illustrated. This is a, a simple phrase, but Charles Briggs uh, in his psalm work highlights this. I think we have a slide for this. This is uh, Charles Briggs from his, his psalm um, uh, commentary. He says this, the hill country of Judah, just really describing the area in which David, David writes, the hill country of Judah is broken up by narrow and precipitous ravines, difficult to ascend and descend, dark, gloomy, and abounding in caves, the abode of wild beasts and robbers. I don't know about you. Doesn't sound like my favorite part of the journey. And we're talking about ancient Israel here. There is no around, there is no over, there is no under, there is only through. So David knew these places. And he's speaking honestly, physically about the life of shepherding, but he's also speaking metaphorically as he pens these words about the very Spirit of God. And he knows that the life of every person will experience precipitous ravines, dark, gloomy places, places that are rocky, places that are, are not sure of footing. Places where there are those who seek to harm and those who seek to attack are lurking and are waiting. You know that, that language, the, the shadow of death, death ought to be enough, right? There's, there's finality there, there's pain there. But David said, no, 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 it's worse than that. It's dark, 
death. It's death that is shrouded in in shadows. He's using this language to enforce and help us understand the path of pain that, quite frankly, all of us at some juncture will walk. But here's what he says. I will fear no evil. He acknowledges that evil will be there and that you and I will experience it and we'll face it. But this is what he says. I will not fear it. Why? Look at the reason. For you are with me. Notice this, that what's happening is his, his vision for what he sees in front of him takes up less space in his mind and his heart than the God that he sees that he knows is with him. So the majesty of God is bigger than the moment he finds himself in. Do you see that? That God protects us. He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That word for rod comes from this word to slay. And that's what a shepherd truly would use a rod for against attackers. He says, I know that the Lord will slay, ultimately, anything that comes against me. And that staff comes from the word to lean or to bring comfort. He says there's this duality to this God who protects me that he takes away and he vanquishes things that would come at me and then he uses that same tool, that same instrument, who he is to draw me into himself and bring comfort to me. This is the God who protects Now look at verse 5 and you'll see the imagery switch. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now I don't know about you, but I love to sit down at a table and eat. Hanging out with enemies in that moment doesn't seem ideal, right? This is like what it's like when you, in in my world, when you go to Northport and you eat like the original Dreamland barbecue. Like that's what it's like. I'm in enemy territory and I'm eating this incredible meal and there's all these people around me. Here's what this phrase actually means. In these days, when when you would go, let's just say, to dinner at someone's house and they would serve you, you came as a guest and you were treated with this incredible honor. This incredible honor. You would come to this home and someone would set a table before you. And they'd place things out, and and, and the meal would be prepared, and you would just come and sit and receive and enjoy. That sounds very hospitable. But more than that, do you know that it's the duty of one who hosts someone else in this day and age to protect them from enemies, to protect them from any harm that may come to them in this moment? I don't know about you, but I don't like the idea of dining in danger. That doesn't sound incredible, but when you recognize what David is saying here, he's saying that this is the level of provision and protection. You see the two working together in this moment? This is the level of the provision and protection that God has. It's not only that he meets your need, it's also that he protects you from those who would assail you. He does it in a In a private sense, he also does it in a corporate sense with others here. There's a beautiful picture 
of the way God provides and protects. And look at verse, or look at the latter part of verse 5, rather. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. A couple of amazing things happening here. Number one, this anointing is one sheerly of just lavishment and just love. Just giving love, just displaying honor and care for someone. So much so that their cup would be full. That they're completely satiated, that they have no need for anything. David wants to remind us and remind himself that God is the provider of all. So much so to the qualitative and quantitative degree that he has everything he could ever want and even more. And more of it than he could imagine. Finally, verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As a psalm of trust, David is professing things that are true about the Lord. That he provides for him. That he protects him. And now David sees in these final moments the way God pursues him. And it yields this incredible response. David says, surely, so that he says this with deep certainty, goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. Now, I don't know about you. But the idea of just experiencing goodness and mercy at all is incredible. David says that they chase him. This language is not, I'll get some of that goodness and mercy, or maybe I'll like catch a little on my way out of this life. No, no, no. Goodness and mercy chase him. They're relentless. They're in pursuit of him. He says that this is who God is. He is perfectly good. And then this last word that, that really describes merciful is the language that is so beautiful in the Old Testament. It's the hesed. It's the loyal love. It's the faithfulness of God. It's the covenant-keeping love of God. It's the peace of God, the grace of God, the love of God, the very mercy of God that pursues him and runs him down. It comes after him. It chases him. And in response to this, in response to this pursuit, this is what he says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And he means two things here. Yes, there is this eternal component of being with God in his presence forever. Because you get to the end of this psalm and you see this big truth. You can trust God because he knows that there is nothing more than God. His presence brings him ultimate joy. But he also says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's being specific about what the house of the Lord is. And it's this. It's brothers and sisters gathering together to worship and to hear God's word and to sing and to experience God in his fullness. He says that he longs to worship. When you and I trust God, when we truly see how he provides for us, how he protects us, and how he pursues us. I mean, Stephanie saying it earlier, I was a wretch, I remember who I was. I was what? I was lost, I was blind, running out of time. 
Truly, that's who we are. And God chases us down. Do you know how he does it? This is how he does it. Look at verse 1. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. John's gospel illustrates this perhaps just in such beautiful parallels. This is John's gospel, chapter 10. And you know this phrase. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who's a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. This is the valley of the shadow of death kind of stuff. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. That I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. Do you know that Psalm 23 speaks of this good shepherd? This is the good shepherd, Jesus himself. And he's a shepherd that comes after his sheep. He knows you. He's with you in the darkest of places. I, can I just be honest with you? One of, one of the most challenging things for me, and I spend time praying and thinking even through these moments uh, in, in preaching, is just I look at you, and, and, and when I look at you, I see you, and I wonder where you are. Like, I really wonder where you are. And I mean that in the sense I wonder what your week's been like and what your month's been like. But I mean that in the sense that I wonder how your heart is. And if you're walking through a dark place, or you've walked through a dark place and you haven't grieved it, and in those moments when I look at you because I love you, I realize I can't do anything for you. But I'm comforted by this, and you should be too. God is with you. He is with you. By spirit, through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's the life, death, and resurrection of the good shepherd that gives us hope. And my hope this morning is that you know him. And if you do not, if you've lived life in the anti-psalm way of saying, I'm my own shepherd, and I'm always hungry, and I have these needs that I can't meet, and my cup is empty, and there's all this treachery, and I'm walking into these dark places, and I don't know if I'm ever going to get out, and I feel alone, and I'm not sure if anyone is there for me, truly. I would tell you that there's a good shepherd that is in pursuit of you, that longs for you to know him. His name is Jesus. 
He loved you so much that he lived the life that you couldn't live. He died the death that you deserve and was raised by the very power of God so that you might have newness of life and experience him. If that's you this morning and you want to trust Jesus, my, my prayer would be that you would come here to the front after this service concludes. I can meet with you and talk with you and pray with you. But if you know Jesus, there's a call for you this morning that comes from this psalm. There's this God who provides for you, this God who protects you, and this God who pursues you. And you know what he's called you to? One, to love and glorify him. But two, you and I have this opportunity this morning. I mean, there are people that we know in the world around us that need some provision. And we're called to provide for them. This is the application this morning. This is what it looks like. We're called to give to the ministries, to the life of this church, so that we can provide for people corporately. You're called to give to ministries and people around you. You're called to meet benevolent needs in your workplace and in your school and in your community and all the places you find yourself. You're meant to be a provider because God has provided for you. You're also meant to be a protector. We long to protect those we love, family members, children, those that are friends, those in our care. We're called to protect others. You know how we help protect them? We help show them that God is trustworthy, that he can be trusted. And finally, man, we're called to pursue one another, to really go after one another, to say, I want to know you. I want to spend time with you. I want to connect with you. I want to pray with you. I want to encourage you. Not just exist. Do you know my dream? Like my dream and my hope is that, that I walk in this place and I see each of you so engaged, so enthralled with one another, so desirous of caring for one another that nobody gets in here on time. And we're like getting there. We don't get in here on time very much. So it's happening. It's beginning to happen. The Lord's working. But man, that we'd be people that are just in radical pursuit of one another. Running each other down with love because we've been loved. So that's the charge. That's the call for us today. We can trust God. He provides for us. He protects us. And in his goodness and his mercy, in the love of Jesus Christ, he's pursued us. Amen? Could we be people that do that for others? If you will, bow your head and pray with me. Heavenly Father, truly, you, you've cared for us in a way that is not just good, it's more good than we can imagine. You've given us your son. God, while we were sinners, people who did not deserve to be pursued, Christ died for us. Father, thanks be to you for your deep love for us. Glory to your name. That you loved us so much that you give us Jesus. God, would you cause us to trust you? Would you cause us to see and imagine just how good a shepherd you are? That you provide, protect, and Father, that you've pursued us. You've loved us to the end in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.